Oh, so the passage that we are in today is, uh, is out of Philippians. No surprise there, because we've been preaching through Philippians for a while, right? And uh, we've talked about this multiple times. What is the theme of Philippians that we've been hitting on every week? Yes, let's try that again, okay. What is the theme of Philippians we've been hitting on every week? Joy, okay, that was a little bit better. Okay, so we've been talking about joy over the last several weeks because that's the theme of this book of Philippians. I'm gonna talk about for a second, right, what is joy? I wanna remind you what joy is. Joy is deep, soul-satisfying contentment. It's a kind of contentment that can express itself in a lot of different ways, right? It can express itself in thankfulness. It, it can express itself in shouting, uh, in, in personal and, and in corporate ways. It's what we feel when we experience something that's worth celebrating. It's a response to blessing in our lives. And it's not only an emotion. This Bible dictionary that I use when I'm trying to define things, it says joy is a quality, not simply an emotion. Right, that joy is this thing that doesn't just come, kind of come in spurts, but that actually, as Christians, it's something that can characterize our lives. You want that in your life? And we talked about the first week of our study in Philippians, how it's a misunderstanding when we say that joy isn't based in our circumstances. That in fact, joy is based in our circumstances. It's circumstantially rooted but that as Christians, we have one ultimate or controlling circumstance that our joy is rooted in because, because this one circumstance infects every part of our lives. And that circumstance is our union with Christ. That being united to Christ means we have access to all of his blessings, that we get to experience and participate with Christ himself. With God, through Christ, he is and becomes our joy. That same definition that we used a few minutes ago, that joy is a quality, not simply an emotion. It goes on and says, of which God is both the object and the giver. Joy is a quality, not simply an emotion, of which God is both the object and the giver. So whether we recognize it or not, all joy in the world is a gift from God. And all of that joy is derivative of him. It comes from him. And we know that in Christ, that's because in, in Christ we have everything our hearts could ever desire. In him we are fully known and fully loved. We're treasured. In him we have everything that we need for life and godliness, that our lives are no longer lives of scarcity, but lives of abundance. That we have a hope that will never leave us and never forsake us. That's why the psalmist says that in his presence there's fullness of joy. And so Philippians is all about that. Paul's writing all about joy. But what he tells us in Philippians, and this is counterintuitive, is that counterintuitive, he tells us that joy is actually found in losing. So we've been following that theme throughout all of our sermons, right? The joy of losing. The joy in losing our priorities of letting God set the agenda in our lives. The joy of losing our own control, right? Or our own autonomy that we're not individual people who get to do whatever we want, but that we're called to be an interdependent community. That we lose our own righteousness. That we would count our own resumes as rubbish. And that losing, we've talked about, has been centered on the person and the work of Christ. And we talked about this great kind of Christ hymn in Philippians 2 that talks about how the second member of the Trinity, right, the preexistent Son of God humbled himself 
that he experienced loss. He gave up his glory to come in the incarnation to us as a man. And that by itself is an act of extreme condescension of God lowering himself to be with us. And yet, he he did even more than that. He died on a cross. And what we talked about is how that pattern of Christ is to be the pattern of our own lives. That because we're united with him, that we experience his death in in our own suffering. But that the promise that there's glory for us in that as well. And there's joy for us there because in our, in our suffering, in our giving up, in our self-denial, in our other's focus, there's communion with Christ. But that, that's hard, isn't it? That we would actually choose to step in to the journey of losing. That there are things that we would choose to put down because of, because of Christ, because of what he's called us to. And that losing can be found, right? That dying to self in little things or in small things. And whether little or small, we feel the weight of those things, don't we? Like, do you ever have this discussion about where you're gonna go to dinner? And you just, you're going with someone else who has, just has a different idea of where they wanna go? Is there like a little bit of dying to self when you have to go to the other person's restaurant? Right? Just like a little bit. But that little bit is still real, isn't it? Right? We feel that. I will tell you it's true, disciplining children, there is a dying to self that happens there. Right, that I have to do something that's inconvenient for me for the benefit of my child. And it happens day in and day out. Or the death to self that comes when you have the opportunity to be inconvenienced for the sake of someone else. We've talked about that, how like if you're trying to neighbor the people on your street, the only time they ever seem to need help is when it's inconvenient for you. There's a death or a dying to self when you have to choose to set down your own agenda and care for another person. And what about when you are called to take care of aging parents, aging grandparents? Is there a death to self in that? Absolutely. What about in forgiving? In forgiving betrayal or or cheating. Is there a death there? Yeah, that losing is hard, isn't it? How do we do it? How do, how do we continue as people who are called to be followers of Christ to go on this journey of life knowing that it's a journey of losing? And what Paul tells us in this passage, where he anchors us in this journey of losing, losing is he anchors us in our ultimate hope as Christians. Paul is reminding us in this passage today where our hope is and that's so important for us because where our hope is has a profound impact on the way that we live and on our receptivity to joy. And a sure foundation for our hope, if we have a sure foundation for our hope, it frees us to live in this kind of self-sacrificing and therefore joyful existence that we've been called to. And without a solid hope, that kind of losing that we're called to day in and day out becomes a place of bitterness and resentment for us rather than a place of joy. And so knowing what our hope is, guys, is so important for us as a church. So that's what we're gonna talk about today. Is where Paul anchors our hope. 
And then if we have time, we'll talk about how that affects how we live. But I'm really stoked about this first point, so we may not get to the second one. We'll see what happens, okay? Uh, so let's go ahead and read uh, Philippians, Philippians 3. If you have your Bibles, you can flip there. It'll also be up on the screen. So this is Philippians 3, verses 17 through 21. It says, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is their destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for our older brother, Paul. Lord, for the words that you gave him and for the life that you gave him that birthed these words. Lord, uh, we pray that you would make us imitators of Paul. Lord, imitators, uh, imitators of, of each other as we are imitating you. Lord, would you, would you birth uh, or strengthen our hope uh, in what's to come, Lord, that we can borrow from that and live in the fullness of it now. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So where I want to start with, start with us is in verses 20 and 21. That's where we're going to spend a lot of our time this morning. So it says, I'm going to just read them for you to, yes, to remind you of them, okay. It says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so there are two kind of places in these verses that Paul's anchoring our hope. One of the places is in heaven, and one of the places is in our new body that we'll receive when when we are in heaven. And that's kind of the same thing, right? So in heaven and in this new body. So we're gonna talk about, first, uh, what is heaven? There are a lot of cultural conceptions, right, of what heaven is, but what does scripture have to teach us about what heaven is? So throughout scripture, there are kind of two ways that the word heaven is often used. The first is to refer to the sky, okay? So sometimes it's just the heavens and the earth, and the heavens are like the place where the birds live. That's not primarily our focus this morning. The other way that the scriptures talk about heaven is that heaven is the place where God dwells with all of his fullness and all of his glory. So yes, we would say God is always present with us, right? He's imminent, he's with us, and he's in this world. But there is a sense in which God's presence is more fully uh, located in heaven, And we get a little bit of a taste of that kind of throughout the Old Testament narrative, right? So when the people of Israel are out wandering in the desert and God leads them in a fiery and a cloudy pillar, that's a manifestation of God's presence. Or when the Israelites build the temple in Jerusalem, there's this place called the Holy of Holies, right? And in that place, the scripture tells us that God's presence dwells in in a more full way there. And that's a picture for us of what it means, of what heaven is. It's a place where God's presence is in its fullest form. And because of that, heaven is a place of holiness, of perfection. It's really important that we understand that when scripture, though, talks about heaven and it talks about our relation to heaven, it never talks about heaven as a place that we go after we die. That like phrase, you know? that we're saved so we can go to heaven when we die. 
that's not the way that scripture phrases our hope for heaven. The way that scripture phrases our hope for heaven, the way Paul teaches it over and over and over again, it consistently speaks of the day when heaven and earth will be remade and will become one. So Revelation 21 talks about this. If you have your Bibles, you can flip with me there or you can just mark it for later. So this is Revelation 21, verses one through four. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of with God the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So you see the picture there in Revelation is this picture of heaven coming down to earth. Romans 8 talks about this same kind of reality. It talks about how all of creation, all of the physical world has been held in bondage because of sin. It's been subjected to futility or to frustration. But that all of creation itself is groaning for the day when earth will be remade. So in the scriptures, when it talks about kind of this fiery day of judgment, that fire is a purifying fire. It's not the obliteration of earth, it's the purifying of earth for this marriage of heaven coming to earth and God dwelling with us. So our hope isn't going to this kind of disembodied heaven. No, our hope is for a redeemed and a renewed creation, a new heavens and a new earth. We see that in verse 20, that our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That we're awaiting the day when he comes back to earth, his second coming, and heaven and earth are made one. And verse 21 goes on to tell us who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. So the promise here is that we're gonna live in a, in a physical world, a renewed heavens, a new earth, and we're gonna live in that new heavens and new earth with new bodies, with humble bodies that have been transformed to be glorious bodies. And friends, that is good news, isn't it? Because our bodies often rebel against us. They often betray us. Like I was at the dentist a few months ago, and the dentist said to me, uh, she was asking about how I was sleeping. I said, well, I'm, you know, I sleep fine some nights, other nights not so well. She said, well, at your age, here are some things we need to be looking out for in your sleep. My, at my age, right? But the doctor said the same thing to me the last time I went to the doctor. I'm like, I'm 31, what are you talking about? But what is true, even at 31, is my body is already rebelling against me, right? There are already ways that it betrays me, and that's true for all of us. And that's true for our bodies regardless of how old we are. And it also becomes true for us the older we get. It doesn't matter how fit you are now. Some of you are very fit, okay? There will be a day when our bodies rebel against us, when they betray us. That's what cancer is, isn't it? That our cells, to, for us to be alive, our cells have to multiply. But sometimes those things go astray. They multiply too much or in ways that are inappropriate that become damaging to us. It's a betrayal. And I think about as we age, 
And you guys, you guys know this really well because of uh, yeah, the parents that so many of you are taking care of, but that often one of two things happens. Either uh, our bodies decay and our minds stay sharp. Like I've heard my grandparents say to me, even as they get older, well, but I don't feel any older. They're like mentally they're saying, yeah, we're here, and, and they mentally they're the same as they were when they were 25, but physically their bodies have broken down. Or it can be the other way sometimes, right? That our, our, our brains have also been affected by the fall and their physicality can be harmed and broken and sometimes our bodies stay strong but our minds are somewhere else. It's a, a horrible and a hard thing to watch. But what scripture tells us is that there will be a day when our bodies won't be breaking down anymore, when they won't betray us, that we'll be free of those things. that the depression and the anxiety that manifest themselves physically in our lives will be gone. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, guys, that there is gonna be a continuity between your body now and your body as it exists. That you will still be you. You will be recognizable. I, people love to ask, what age do you think we'll be? I have no idea, okay? But you'll still be you. The analogy that Paul uses is he said, it's like a seed to a fully mature plant. That's, that's the comparison that he uses. That our bodies right now are humble bodies, right? That they're a seed. And that what they'll be made into will be a fully mature plant. We'll, we'll be given something that's more full than we can even imagine. And this is not, because this is not an optional part of Christian theology or like an add-on. Okay, for Paul, this was a central element of his gospel. We see that in verses 10 through 11 of, uh, of chapter three. He says that I may know him, this is Paul talking, that he may know Christ and the righteousness from God that depends on, no, I wrote that in the wrong order, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That, that what Paul believed is that our union with Christ was so tight that we're associated so closely with our Jesus that just as Jesus suffered and experienced death in this life, that when we experience those things, that's evidence of the fact that we've been united with Christ. And that in the same way that we've been united with Christ in our suffering, that there, that there is a certainty that we will be united with him in his resurrection. That as he was resurrected, so we will be resurrected. And what that means then is our suffering becomes a mark not of God's disfavor on our life, but as a doorway of participating with Jesus. And that's why we can say with confidence that there will be a day when we will be glorified. And that's our hope. It's anchored in this new heavens and the new earth. And the being with Christ Right, that he will be with us physically and that we'll be like him physically because it's his power that's at work within us. Okay, so what does all that have to do with joy, right? That's a great question. I know it's the one you were all asking in your minds. Well, the reality is, is that what we hope in, it shapes how we live, right? Like there was this time in my life where I was hoping to run a marathon. And I will tell you, it was a stretch, Okay. But the fact that I was hoping to run a marathon means I signed up for a marathon. And it means that I had to live in light of what I was looking forward to or dreading, but what I knew was coming either way, right? It was certain because I had signed up for it. And so because of that, in the, in the week 
weeks would be a, a minimization. In the months leading up to that, I had to do work to get ready for this time that I knew was coming. It's true for us at work, right? When we want to get a promotion. When you want to get a promotion, does that change the way that you work? Anybody? Is that, yes, right? And when, you're, when you have given up hope for a promotion or you've gotten the promotion and it isn't what you wanted, does the way that you work change? Because our hope, for the, our hope has died in some way. So what we're saying is that what we're hoping in matters. And, and we live at a time where something really unique is happening pretty much in all of human history, okay? We live at a time where it is a very acceptable worldview and actually a very prominent worldview that would say that there is nothing after death, that we're just obliterated and our consciousness is obliterated. That's like a very novel way of understanding what happens after death in the course of human history. And the fact that we've removed this hope out of, our, out of the way that we think and live, it has impacts on the way that we live. But functionally, living with like a vague kind of like hazy view of the afterlife can really have a lot of the same ramifications in our lives. Because what happens is that if we don't have a hope for what happens after life, what we have to do with this life is squeeze everything out of it that we can. That this life becomes our ultimate. And all of the things in this life become ultimate. And that can express itself in a lot of different ways, but Paul talks about it in verse 19 of our passage this morning. He says, their end is their destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things that when our minds are set on earthly things, our God becomes our belly. And, and this doesn't mean our, our God becomes our desire for food, but he's talking about our appetites. That the things that we desire become the things that we worship in this life. And that can have all kinds of effects in the way that we live. It deforms the way that we live. And it can express itself in, uh, in really dark ways. Right? Like I think about uh, the show House of Cards where this person's like desire for power, or excuse me, desire for purpose became corrupted into a desire for power that was willing to destroy the people around him for the sake of that power. That's what happens when our God becomes our belly and the thing that we most desire is purpose or power. It can come out looking like that and it can be dark. It can also come out in, in ways that look very kind, right? But even, but even when our desire, even when our desires come out as kindness, there's still a block there, isn't there? Because if we're not living for a hope that's beyond this life, right, then the question that we're always asking ourselves is, uh, is, is it worth it for me to give this up? Is this self-sacrifice worth it? And sometimes we might decide that it is worth it because it makes us feel good enough that we're willing to give it up. But it means that we're always duck, we're always enslaved or chained to this kind of balancing game of trying to figure out, is this actually, is this, is this worth it for me to give up? And there's no hope for us there. There's no joy for us there. There's no freedom. And what Paul is doing in this passage is he's anchoring our hope in something sure, in this, in this future. And what we do when we hope is we borrow the future joy that we know is ours in Christ and we bring it into the present. That's what we're doing when we hope. We take this joy that we know is guaranteed for us in the future and we bring it into the present. We nourish ourselves with it in the present. And that joy from, 
that joy that we're borrowing from the future that we bring into the present, that is what sustains us and fuels us as we live this life of loss as Christians. It frees us from needing to make our jobs the things that give us purpose. It frees us from needing our friendships to be the thing that, that get rid of our loneliness or from our romantic relationships to being the things that give us significance. We're free from those things and we're able to appreciate them for the gifts that they are rather than making them ultimate things. And the dying to self that we've been called to practice over these last few weeks become opportunities for joy. That they remind us of our hope. And that's why it is so important for us as followers of Jesus that we move beyond a kind of culturally formed and totally inaccurate view of heaven. Because those things stunt our spiritual growth that what this passage is calling us to, what Paul is calling us to, is to be a people who mature in hope. That we're fixing our minds and our hearts on what we know is to come, on what Jesus has promised us. And that strengthens us for this journey of living the Christian life. There's this theologian, Herman Ritterboss, he says it like this. He says, without the hope of the resurrections at Christ's parousia, which means his return, right? So without the hope of the resurrection at Christ's return, the Christian life and struggle lose their meaning. But the inverse of that, right, is with the hope of resurrection at Christ's return, the Christian life and struggle have meaning because they form the the anchor that reminds us that death has been defeated through the death of Christ. And they remind us of the promise of the resurrection that we have through his resurrection. That gives us hope and joy as we walk this life of losing. Okay, so that's our hope. What does it mean to live as people of hope? How would that actually work itself out in our lives? I mean, guys, I could talk about this all day because this theology of the body, of a new heavens and a new earth, man, it gives us totally new direction. It actually shapes and informs our moral and ethical choices in this world. And that directs us in how we would live so that we would experience joy in the here and now. One of the things that, one of the implications of this passage is that you, friend, are a whole person. Mind, body, soul, spirit, you are a whole person. And there's this kind of like enlightenment or this innovation in enlightenment thinking that separated us out into different components. As if like our mind and our heart and our body were all of these things that could be treated differently. And what this verse says to us, what the scripture says to us is that that's not true. You are a whole person. And that, that kind of pulling apart of us as people, because that's been happening for a long time, okay? That was a thing that was, that was present in Greek philosophy, okay? And it's actually, we have our own way of expressing it in our current world, don't we? There's this like trend of digitization, digitization, yeah, that has been like, that has been accelerating and even accelerated further through COVID, right? But actually being physically present with each other doesn't really matter that much. And so we've got this like work from home trend, for example, that has definitely been accelerated through COVID. 
But one of the things that we've also been confronted with is that in being physically isolated from people, right, we've had all of the tools that we've needed to connect. No shortage of opportunities to even see each other virtually. But does that mean, have you still been lonely? Were you still lonely in the last year and a half? Is anybody awake with me? Is anyone still here with me this morning? Let's try that again, okay. Was anyone lonely in the last year and a half? Yes. yes, okay. So what that means is that FaceTime is not a substitute for being in person, and we know that. That's why when we watched people die without their loved ones present with them, it broke our hearts. We look at that and we say, something is not right about that. but we don't have a way to account for that in our kind of Western, modern, uh, compartmentalized way of thinking of our humanity. And what this scripture says is that, no, you're right, there is something wrong about that because we're whole people and our embodied presence, it matters. And that being embodied, actually, guys, it's a very risky thing to do, isn't it? We're taking a risk when we choose to actually show up physically with each other. My friends who have used dating apps have told me this. I never had the privilege of using dating apps, but many of you have, okay? I've heard your stories. And what I've heard you say, right, is that when you read a person's profile, um, you get a, just one perspective on the person, let's say. And that then if you decide, you know, okay, I want to go ahead and talk to this person, that as you message and go back and forth, you, you, get a, you get a version of that person. But actually stepping out of that, like, digital conversation and into an enfleshed date is a very different thing, isn't it? It's a risky thing. Because now you don't have time to filter your thoughts or, or, or get your words just right. You actually have to live in front of the person. And there's a risk there. But with that risk actually becomes the only opportunity to know and be known fully. That if what you're hoping for is love, that that requires a face-to-face -face kind of interaction. If, you, if what you're looking for is joy, we know that the joy that we're looking for can't just be found digitally. And the scripture says, yes, that's true. That's the way that God created you. And part of, the, part of the invitation and how we would live out of that hope is that we would embrace the fact that we're whole people and that being together with each other matters. But as we learn to love each other sacrificially, as we learn to love our world sacrificially, one of the ways that we do that is we take the risk of being present with people physically. That we take the risk of actually showing up and celebrating with people in person that we would physically take the risk of showing up and being vulnerable with people emotionally when they're going through a really hard thing. And that emotional risk there is real, but it's a way that we love each other. That's part of why we're, that's why we do this. Why we do this in person. It's why we're looking forward to doing this uh, more and more fully, right? That's why we'll never be a digital church or fully online is because being in person here together as a community, hearing each other, seeing, receiving the sacraments together, just think about that. That when our Lord gave us sacraments to remind us of who we are in him, he gave us physical things. He gave us bread and wine that we could eat and drink. He gave us water that could be poured over our heads and that we could watch that happen in person. It matters to him.
That's one of the ways that we kind of live out this reality is in the ways that we choose to love each other by being physically present with each other. Okay, one of the other ways I want to talk about how we live out this hope is in the phrase that we get in this passage when Paul says that we are citizens of heaven. He says in verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. Okay, so in the same way that we're looking forward to a day when we'll experience our resurrection bodies, we're also looking forward to a day, like we talked about, when the, all of creation will be renewed. And what Paul is telling us, this is actually, guys, this is a very subversive idea that Paul is sharing right here. Because what he's saying is that you are a citizen of a kingdom that has just broken into this world. That you are a representative of the kingdom of Jesus in this world, and that kingdom is not all of these other kingdoms. There is no dual citizenship, okay, in this economy. You're, you're a citizen of heaven. And this really, this made sense to the Philippians because the Philippians took a lot of pride in the fact that they were Roman citizens. Okay, so this is the way this is just a little tangent into ancient history, but you guys know I love that, so just go with me for a second, okay? So the way, that, uh, the way that the Roman Empire was set up is that the city of Rome, the people who lived in the city of Rome, enjoyed a ton of privileges that nobody else in the Roman Empire experienced. One of the perks of living in Rome is that you didn't have to pay taxes. That's a pretty good perk, right? And that one of the things that, uh, as the empire kind of changed, one of the things that the emperors would do uh, to kind of represent and expand their sphere of influence in the world, that one of the ways they would project uh, cultural and military might out into the world is they would form these colonies. And a colony was a place where all of the privileges of Rome were given to those citizens. So they had all of these rights that they didn't have otherwise. But as they, as they accrued these rights, what came along with that were also responsibilities. Right, because the idea of being a citizen held a lot of weight in the Roman world. There were obligations that sat on you when you were a citizen of the Roman state. And those obligations also extended to the people who were in the colonies. Okay? So people in colonies had rights and they had responsibilities. That's what we're saying. But to be a, but to be a citizen of Rome, was a, it was something that made people really proud. It was a place where they put a lot of their identity. And you can see that even in the, the, um, the archaeology of Philippi. That in a world where all the people around them spoke Greek, but all of the inscriptions in Philippi are in Latin, right? They were proud of the fact they were Roman citizens. And what Paul is saying to these people is, hey, that is not your primary citizenship. Your Roman citizenship is not your primary identity. Your primary identity is as a, is as a citizen of heaven. And as a citizen of heaven, you have both rights and responsibilities. And that's true for us. Think about the rights that you have in Christ. We talked about them a little bit, that you have been given everything that you need for life and godliness. That Christ has showered his grace and his mercy upon you. That you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you who is always pouring God's love into your heart. That's a, that's a right that you have as someone who's united to Christ. That you actually you stand before God justified in his sight because of what Jesus has done for you. That belongs to you. That's true of you. You get to claim that. And along with all of those rights that we have, we get the awesome responsibility of bearing witness to that citizenship in our world. 
that in the way that we live and interact with the people around us, what we get to declare is that there is a kingdom that is coming and it is coming more fully. And we get to be representatives of that kingdom in our day-to-day lives. Oh, no, we could talk forever about what that means. I've been thinking about this week, like, what does that mean for the way that we work, right? What does it mean that you are a citizen of heaven in your workplace? It means that your values should be shaped first and foremost not by the values of your field, but by the fact that you are a citizen of heaven. Like I've heard some of you talk about your workplaces and you say, well, in my workplace, people aren't really valued. You know, the human capital, emphasis on the capital part of it. And so, yeah, like I know my coworkers, but like we don't really like talk or like talk about personal things. Okay, that is not a value of the kingdom of heaven. The value of the kingdom of heaven is that the people around you are people. And so the call is of you being a citizen of heaven first is you get that, the, the beautiful, the awesome responsibility of seeing the people around you as people. That's one of the ways we represent Christ to the world around us, right? It's true also in the way that we work. Like for some of us, that for some of us, lying is just like a part of our job, right? It's like, oh, well, we don't really call it a lie, but like, well, we just kind of, in this field, this is the way that we talk about what's true. Okay. That is not a value of the kingdom of heaven, right? A value of the kingdom of heaven is telling the truth. And you embracing that as part of your identity is a way of representing your citizenship, your ultimate citizenship to the world around you. It's true on our streets, right, in our neighborhoods. You guys know I love talking about this. That your home your home is an outpost of the kingdom of God. That the Lord has planted you in East Nashville on your street on purpose. And that you are a representative of the king of, of the king of heaven, of the kingdom that's coming on that street. So your home isn't just a private retreat anymore. No, your home is a ministry, a laboratory, right? It's a field hospital where you get to invite people in. Oh, what a beautiful, awesome responsibility. Right? And that, that when people would come into our homes, that what they would see, what they would experience is the self-giving, sacrificial love of Jesus. That what they would be overwhelmed with is the grace and the love of our Savior that they experience just as they step into our homes. And that's being an outpost of the kingdom of heaven in, in the way that you... Uh, steward that space. And, and I really believe, guys, that if, if, if we are gonna see people come to know and trust Jesus who don't already know him in our part of the city, that's what it's gonna take. Right, that people here have heard all kinds of stories about Jesus and they have all kinds of preconceived ideas. We live in the South for crying out loud, right? They're gonna get plenty of that. But coming into contact with people who have been changed by grace is a totally different thing being invited into someone's personal life and watching that worked out, being worked out is a totally different thing. It's experiencing unconditional love. Right? That's a totally different thing. So that's why our vision and our heart for this church is that we would be a church that, that practices its citizenship in the way that we practice hospitality to the people around us. And there is a cost there, isn't there? when you have people come and come into your home or you don't know, when you have people stay with you or live with you for a period of time, right? There's a cost there. But the promise is that we have a hope that is somewhere else. We have a hope of a home that's coming. 
and that as we engage in this kind of gospel hospitality, that we get to pull from that hope and that joy and bring it into the way that we love the people around us, even when it comes at great cost to ourselves, because we have a Savior who did that for us, right? who at great cost to himself left his home so that he could make a way for us to be with him in his home. And that's the Jesus that our hope is in. That's the Jesus who gives our, and that's the Jesus in whom we ground our hope and our joy. Pray with me. Father, uh, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful, Lord, that you, uh, that you left your home and that you came to.